world's becoming a dangerous place for us women. Lipstick Bodyguard looks just like an innocent little lipstick, but it'll instantly drop any attacker to his knees so you can get away unharmed. Lipstick Bodyguard, fear no evil. Get yours today, only at LipstickBodyguard.com. This week, a frustrated listener's plea for help with a control freak father who is doing whatever he can to undermine the care of his spouse. And Diane's surprisingly counterintuitive advice. Plus, a Florida senior uncovers a unique strategy for beating long emergency room waiting lines. Police later recovered the stolen ambulance in his neighbor's driveway. Welcome to Parents Are Hard to Raise, helping families grow older together without losing their minds. I'm elder care expert Diane Berardi. So I got an email from Margaret from Janesville, Wisconsin this week, and she wrote, Mom and Dad live in Pennsylvania, and my brother is in Florida. Mom has dementia, and Dad has been in fairly good health. Dad finally allowed us to get help in the home for Mom. Of course, we don't feel it's enough but it's a start. Thank you, Diane, for finding us a home care service that has worked out beautifully. So mom is the one who needs the help, and we have been telling dad to get out while the help is there. Don't try to still do things or help the help. Anyway, since he wouldn't allow 24-hour help, which they need, because he wanted some alone time with mom, mom got out of bed the other day when just her and dad were home. And so she started to fall, so Dad reached out to catch her. Then he started to complain that his back hurt. And every time I would talk to him, I could hear, you know, that he was in pain. I could feel his pain and hear it in his voice. But we kept telling him, my brother and I, go to the doctor. No, I can't leave Mom. Yes, you can, we would say. When you have help there, you can go. Then he starts to tell us that his back is really hurting and he's been sleeping in a chair because his back hurts and he can't get out of bed. And he's telling us he's in so much pain. I finally said to him, you have to go to the doctor. That's all I can tell you to do. I can't help you anymore. Finally, he goes to the doctor and the doctor says that he's pulled a muscle in his back and he tells him he has to go for physical therapy three times a week. So what does my father do? He goes once and says it hurts too much to go for physical therapy. And I'm saying to him, but that's the idea. It's going to hurt, but then you're going to start to feel better, but you have to go. Of course, he still hasn't gone back, and he's still sleeping in the chair. And whenever we call, he just moans and complains about his back. We never get to talking to him about mom because it's all about him. So I find now that I don't even want to call to hear him whine. But then I feel guilty. So I call, and I don't even ask him how he is (laughs) because he won't help himself. I just say, how is mom? So now I feel really bad. So have I gone over the edge? Am I truly a bad daughter? (laughs) Well, Margaret, 
you're not a bad daughter. And listen, I've seen this more times than I can count. You know, what you're feeling is you're not a bad person, you're feeling frustration, you know, because your dad isn't listening to you. So because there's something he can do to fix the problem. And, you know, sometimes with the elderly, they'll just complain, complain, complain. And you can give them 10 different solutions, and they'll find a rebuttal for everything you tell them. I I go through that with clients, you know, um, with clients, mothers or fathers, you know, they'll call me and I'll talk to them and everything that, you know, I might offer as a solution to try, they'll come back to me with why they can't do that. So you really can't force him to go to physical therapy, you can keep suggesting it. You know, what I would say is, you know, dad, what's going to happen if you can't walk, if you can't get out of that chair, what's going to happen to mom? What happens if you wind up in the hospital? You know, what, do you, what is mom going to do? So you can try that. And, you know, we try with elderly parents, you said, like, you don't feel empathetic anymore. We try, you know, with elderly parents, we try to have empathy for whatever situation they're going through. And, but sometimes we don't have it. We can't, you know, it's exasperating. I mean, empathy is, you know, the ability to share and understand the emotions of someone else. So, you know, we want to understand their condition from their perspective. We want to understand what they're experiencing. We try to put ourselves in their shoes and feel what they're feel feeling. But you can't always do that in every situation. You have empathy. You had empathy. You you set up care for them. Then, you know, your dad got hurt. You told him what to do. You told him to go to the doctor. You tell him don't sleep in the chair. You tell him he has to continue to go for physical therapy. So, and, you know, empathy is important for all of us in, in life, not only, you know, with our parents, but just to live with other people. Because it helps us understand how other people are feeling so we can respond, you know, appropriately to the situation. And a lot of research shows that the greater the empathy we have, it leads to us helping and it being more helpful. But it doesn't mean, you know, that we're no longer empath empathetic if we're not em empathetic in every situation and to every pers person. Empathy can be selective. You know, we can feel empathetic to one person and not to another in exactly the same situation. You know, if, if someone, if you watch a car accident, for example, and a, a person hits another person and it, it just happened, it was an accident, you can be empathetic to the person who hit someone else's vehicle just as much as you're empathetic to the person who got hit. But if it's, you know, um, someone who's, uh, you know, an alcoholic or someone who's inebriated and they hit another person, you might not be as empathetic to them. I remember witnessing a car accident. We were driving and this guy just out of nowhere hit these people, you know, and, and we rushed to the people that were hit and it was a husband and wife and a daughter, you know, and, and they were all, you know, put on stretchers. And then we, you know, you rushed to the car that hit the person and the guy was obviously, you know, he was toasted and he was mean and he was going, get me out of this car, you know, but he was slobbering over his words and there were people all around and people were like, they were mad at him, you know, they they didn't seem to show as much empathy to him as they did, obviously, the people he hit. So, 
don't feel, you know, like you've lost your empathetic sense, you know, or, or, or feeling. And, you know, my insight into empathy, I, 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 talk to students all the time about empathy and there's different ways to look at empathy you know there's effective empathy where you share the emotion of others so if your friend is upset you really feel upset too it affects you very much or you watch a scary movie you know and the person is you know in in the dark and they're walking into their house and they're they're really feeling scared and you feel scared as well research uncover the existence of these mirror neurons that we have that mother nature gave us and these mirror neurons they react to emotions expressed by someone else and then they reproduce themselves in us so mris have shown that our brains actually experience what other people are experiencing you know so someone smiles at us and we spontaneously smile back or someone screams in pain and we cringe i know my husband was, is having problems with his neck and his back and just to sit down he was like screaming in pain and every time he did that i cringed you know like i could feel his pain or someone laughs and you laugh laughter is contagious so for an instant it's as if we're experiencing or these events are happening to us and in a way they are Empathy isn't unique to humans. Years ago, scientists were studying specific nerve cells in macaque monkeys' brains, and they found that their cells fired when the monkeys threw a ball or they ate a banana. But what was surprising was those same cells fired when the monkeys watched another monkey throw a ball or eat a banana. So their brain reacted as if the monkey was throwing the ball themselves or eating the banana. So these cells were initially named monkey see, monkey do, neurons. But later the name was changed to mirror neurons because these cells allowed monkeys to mirror another monkey's actions in their own minds. So we humans, just like the macaque monkeys, have these neurons that act like mirrors. And studies suggest that these cells may form the basis for human empathy because they transport us into another person's mind briefly, making us feel what that person's feeling. There's also cognitive empathy. So it's the ability to understand the emotions of other people. Like a psychiatrist, he understands his patient's emotions in a rational way, but he doesn't feel those emotions. He doesn't share them deep down. Or if you want to, you know, just look at everyone's side of or everyone's input into a situation before you make a decision. So you're understanding, you know, their emotions, but you're not actually feeling them. And then there's emotional regulation, which is exactly how what it is it you're regulating emotions like a pediatric surgeon controls his emotions when he's operating on a baby so there's neuroscientific agreement that empathy occurs across at least 10 brain areas so there's this brain circuit responsible for creating empathy many of the areas of our brain become activated when we experience a sensation or a feeling but also when we see other peer people experience it. If you're familiar with the story of Phineas Gage, 
he was 25 years old and he was a foreman on the railroad in, in the 1800s. And he was involved in this construction accident. And there was this explosion and it drove an iron rod through his skull. And he survived and he lived for 10 more years. But the accident, you'll, you'll, uh, as the story goes, the accident turned him into a rude and inconsiderate person. His doctor said his behavior changed in these following ways. He was fitful, so he, his, his behavior was erratic. He lacked respect for people. He was irreverent. He indulged in the grossest of profanity. He had little or no regard for people. He was impatient and he showed little restraint when it conflicted with what he wanted. The doctor said his mind was radically changed. He was no longer Phineas Gage. And scientists found that that iron bar penetrated a brain area that is a key part of this brain circuit responsible for creating empathy. So the accident deprived Phineas Gage of the ability to feel empathy. How do we improve empathy? Guess what? People consistently who read more fiction, studies suggest, they read more novels, score much higher on empathy tests. And when we come back, new research shows siblings can make you more empathetic. I want to tell you about my friend Katie. Katie is a nurse and she was attacked on her way home from work. She was totally taken by surprise. And although Katie is only five feet tall and 106 pounds, she was easily able to drop her six foot four, 250 pound attacker to his knees and get away unharmed. Katie wasn't just lucky that day. She was prepared. In her pocketbook, a harmless looking lipstick, which really contained a powerful man-stopping aerosol propellant. It's not like it was in our grandmother's day. Today, just going to and from work or to the mall can have tragic consequences. The FBI says a violent crime is committed every 15 seconds in the United States, and a forcible rape happens every five minutes. And chances are, when something happens, no one will be around to help. It looks just like a lipstick, so no one will suspect a thing, which is important since experts say getting the jump on your attacker is all about the element of surprise. Inside this innocent looking lipstick is the same powerful stuff used by police and the military to disarm even the most powerful armed aggressor. In fact, National Park Rangers use the very same formula that's inside this little lipstick to stop 2,000 pound vicious grizzly bears dead in their tracks. It's like carrying a personal bodyguard with you in your purse or your pocket. Darkness brings danger. Muggers and rapists use darkness to their advantage. We all know what it's like to be walking at night and hear footsteps coming at us from behind. Who's there? If it's somebody bad, will you be protected? Your life may depend on it. My friend Katie's close call needs to be a wake-up call for all of us, myself included. Pick up a lipstick bodyguard and keep it with you always. You're listening to Parents Are Hard To Raise. Now, thanks to you, the number one elder care talk show on planet Earth. So did you know that siblings can make you more empathetic? 
If you're lucky enough to grow up with brothers and sisters, you probably spend, spent more time with them than you did even your parents or your, fr or your friends. And siblings can have a dramatic impact on each other's development. So if you have a child who's kind, supportive, and understanding, they can influence their brother or sister to act and behave the same way. And if one sibling is struggling to be empathetic, and then you have another sibling who has strong empathetic skills, they can help their other sibling manage to become more empathetic over time. And what happens? A child who is empathetic grows up to be an empathetic friend, spouse, or parent. Somebody asked me the other day, and I've been thinking about this, you know, because people in healthcare today, I think, I, I don't know, there's so much going on and there's so much tension, it seems, you know, and, and I, I, hospitals, mergers, and people, you know, struggling for to be in first position or whatever. And so somebody said to me, you know, do you think that uh, because we're so busy in healthcare that, you know, healthcare professionals are losing their empathy? And, you know, I do think that I'm not everyone and not in every situation, but I think it happens. And, you know, people, patients, elderly in particular, they base their experience with a doctor. You know, you'll hear he didn't have any kind of bedside manner. You know, they can sit in a doctor's appointment or and, and you know, go through the appointment, but then they don't come back because they didn't like that. He wasn't nice or he didn't listen, you know, or he felt rushed. And, you know, healthcare professionals, you're faced with situations that need empathy and compassion. You know, you have to comfort an 80-year-old anxious person, you know, and you have to you have to be skilled in, in, in trying to sense, you know, what she's going through and respond what's, what's helpful for her. And I think empathy, it's being stunted today. It's being overshadowed by all these time, you know, restraints and demands, technology and all these efficiency models. And you have 15 minutes, you know, to see a patient or and things like that. And it doesn't mean that patients don't want an empathetic nurse or doctor. If you remember in To Kill a Mockingbird, Atticus Finch, he taught his daughter, Scout, the meaning of empathy. He said, you really never understand a person until you consider things from his point of view, until you climb into his skin and walk around in it. And that's empathy. So I think we do all need more of that today. And that's not just in healthcare. I think that's just we as people, as the human race. And, you know, because you have to identify with what people are feeling and you have to understand what they're feeling. And if you do and you you can communicate with them because empathy makes it makes communication much better. It makes understanding what people are going through better. Even when you think about our technology today, you know, interaction is different. When you think about a nurse, you know, years ago, touch was always a large part of nursing. I remember my mother-in-law, we were visiting someone in the hospital. It wasn't even the hospital she worked in. She was a nurse. And, you know, there was a patient in the bed next to the patient we were visiting, and he kept, you know, using his call button, and no one was coming. So my mother-in-law went over there, and she touched his hands, and she held his hands. She said, what do you need? What can I do for you? You know, and and you could see the the patient, he just, you know, kind of relaxed. And even today, you know, 
years ago, nurses would hold your, hold, you know, your hand and take your pulse, but they don't do that anymore. They stick on, you know, that probe attached to your finger and they, they don't, you know, they don't sit there and talk to you and hand you the medication. They wheel in this cart and there's kind of like that barrier between you and the patient. And even students learning, they're learning with these computerized mannequins. So they're not, they're not learning on humans, you know, um, technology also encourages multitasking. You know, we talked about this, you go into a doctor's visit and the doctor's, you know, typing or the person taking the information or the nurse, they're typing on this, you know, laptop while they're talking to you. They're not even looking at you. You know, there's a lot of learning going on in labs. So they're not, so not dealing with humans. So touch is very important. Empathy is very important. And also, did you know that touching may ease the pain by synchronizing brain waves? So if you hold your loved one's hand when they're in pain, it will comfort them and cause your brain waves to synchronize. Scientists have shown that the hearts of romantic partners beat at the same rate, making the phrase our hearts beat as one more true than previously thought. So holding your partner's hand can ease their pain, raise your empathy, and even cause you and your partner's heart and respiration rates to synchronize. So I have some interesting things in the news. There's a conference in Florida where a doctor dangled the promise of youth to baby boomers. If you paid $195 per person, this doctor was promoting a clinical trial that would deliver transfusions of young blood, blood from 18 to 35-year-olds to aging baby boomers. So people came from as far away as Scotland and Spain to attend, you know, this conference, and they were told that some of their chronic conditions could possibly disappear and that young people's blood offered the potential to add years to one's life. You just would have to pay $285,000 if you were selected for the trial. Payment details were still being worked out with the FDA. <laughs> Speaking of Florida, there was a Florida man who was upset over his two-hour wait in the emergency room. So he stole the ambulance to drive home. <laughs> so this Florida man was picked up um, and taken to the village's regional hospital Tuesday night. He had to wait two hours in the emergency room, and he just decided, well, that was long enough. So, you know, he was taken to, to the hospital by this ambulance after a neighbor called 911 saying that he was drunk and suicidal. But this particular Florida resident told the police he grew frustrated after waiting two hours in the emergency room to see a doctor. So he decided he only lived 5.7 miles away, so he decided to drive the ambulance to his home. But what did he do? He parked it in his neighbor's driveway because he thought that was the neighbor who called the police on him. So, of course, they found him hiding in the trunk of his car in his garage. So he was arrested for stealing the ambulance. <laughs> Crazy-faced cats don't win the adoption game. 
Researchers recently developed an intricate index of every feline facial expression possible. So they found that it didn't matter what kind of face a cat made. They didn't get adopted from a shelter. Instead, they got adopted more often by rubbing on toys and furniture, if they rubbed on toys and furniture. Why did this study begin in the first place? Because psychologists found that shelter dogs who raised their brows more frequently were adopted more quickly than other dogs. So they wanted to see if that applied to cats as well. It didn't. Why they said, I guess they're trying to be nice, you know, they thought, well, unlike dogs, cats, they weren't living with humans as long. So that was what they decided. They haven't had, and they haven't had the evolutionary pressure to appeal to humans. So now, why do we use euphemisms to talk about when someone dies? Because talking about death and dying, it's taboo in many parts of the world. People avoid talking about it, and they struggle to find the right words. So we want to try to make people more comfortable talking about death. So people, people from around the world were asked, you know, how do they tell someone if you know, someone has died. I remember when I first started in healthcare, I got a call from um, a nurse who said, you know, Mr. Jones expired. And I, I had no idea what that meant. I'm like, expired? I said, well, what does that mean? No one taught me that that was what it meant that someone died. I'm like, well, what does that mean? He's not a library card. That was the only thing I knew that expired at the time. He, and she's like, he died. I'm like, oh, well, why didn't you just say he died? So what are some euphemisms for dying? Well, they're humorous alternatives. Sometimes people said he, the patient was on the wrong side of the grass, taking a dirt nap, warm food, cashed in their chips, staring at the lid. <laughs> Some of these I'd never even heard of, but most often people said that the person was gone or passed, passed away, passed over, or passed on. But there were some, still some historical phrases that were popular, shuffled off or shuffled off this mortal coil. That was from Shakespeare's Hamlet, Six Feet Under, Promoted to Glory, Australianism was carked it. The UK, gone for a Burton. Cockney rhyming song, brown bed. The US reported, crossed into Beulah land. And of course, sleeping with the fishes <laughs> from the Godfather. So why do we use euphemisms? Because we want to politely say, when it, we don't want to offend anyone and we want to politely say, the person kicked the bucket. So think about it. How do you say to someone, you know, that a person has died? One more item from the news. You buy insurance, health insurance to protect against some catastrophic, catastrophic event or emergency. But if you have health insurance through Anthem, you may be on your own 
in an emergency. Anthem has introduced a restriction on emergency care coverage, effectively denying most, if not all, coverage if they decide that your emergency room visit wasn't an emergency condition. So if you're having severe abdominal pain and nausea, and you're thinking, oh my God, you know, my cousin sounds like what they had, appendicitis. And you go to the emergency room and you find out it was only a nasty stomach virus. Anthem may review the bill and decide that your visit was inappropriate. And it could have been treated by your doctor in his office or at an urgent care center. And that would have been at a fraction of a cost. So you may be responsible for the bill. Anthem and its subsidiaries last year notified its members in Georgia, Kentucky, and Missouri of this new policy. What is it? It's part of a national cost-cutting strategy. Of course, the American Hospital Association, the AMA, and the American College of Emergency Physicians has publicly denounced this policy. And Senator Claire McCaskill of Missouri is investigating it. But it doesn't matter. Anthem is undeterred by this. They don't care. They've added their denial policy in three more states. In Massachusetts, Unicare, an Anthem subsidiary, that provides health insurance for Massachusetts public workers. They've buried a non-emergency clause on page 47 of its member's handbook. So you have to really take a look at your insurance policies. That is crazy. My survival tip of the week. We have to all try to combat negative thinking. So when something happens, you know, you get thrown a curveball, a disappointment, a challenge with your mom and dad, just remind yourself it's temporary. I also want to welcome our new listeners. We had a ton of new listeners from the U.S., from Moorhead and Fargo, North Dakota, from Moorhead, Minnesota, excuse me, from West Plains, Missouri, Nashville, Tennessee, Atlanta, Georgia, upstate South Carolina, Boynton Beach, and Orlando, Florida. Welcome. What was the biggest insight that you're taking away from today's episode? Believe it, episode 50. Remember, the very best conversations happen over at parentsarehardtoraise.org. So I want you to go there right now and leave a question or comment so myself, our team, and the entire Parents Are Hard to Raise worldwide community can support you. Share as much detail as you can because thousands of incredible souls come here each week for insight and inspiration. And your story may give someone else exactly what they need to live more fully right now. One of the things we're all starving for is community and connection. So please join us. If you found something helpful in this episode, episode 50, please subscribe on iTunes or iHeartRadio. And I'd be so grateful if you'd share this episode with your family and friends. And I look forward to reading your comments. And can't wait till we meet up again on the next episode of Parents Are Hard to Raise. Parents Are Hard to Raise is a counterthink media production. The music used in this broadcast was managed by Cosmo Music, New York, New York, under license of Broadcast Music Incorporated. Thank you so much for listening. See you again next week.